Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast is Gabe Vecchi. Gabe's research spans a remarkably wide range of topics. He started as an oceanographer, studying intraseasonal variability in the Pacific, before moving his research focus after his PhD to the Indian Ocean, and then to a range of atmospheric problems, including, just as one example, a critically important paper on the influence of global warming on the tropical walker circulation, and then Gabe got into hurricanes, a topic on which he's been a key player for a decade and a half now, at least. Gabe has made important contributions not just on those topics, but on a dizzying array of others that one can see on his truly remarkable publication list. Gabe's work spans ocean and atmosphere, tropical and extratropical, weather and climate, basic and applied, and nearly every other dichotomy in this field one can think of. In fact, Gabe says that to keep things fresh, scientists should be forced to change the topics they work on every 10 years. While he himself hasn't necessarily lived exactly by that, and I don't think he expects any such rule to be adopted seriously, I don't think he really means it as a joke either. Hallmarks of Gabe's work, and Gabe himself, are freshness, openness to new ideas, and for that matter, openness to what the data say in science, and overall, the lack of pretense that he brings to science and to life. Gabe's scientific career proper began as an undergraduate at Rutgers, then to a PhD at the University of Washington, and then from NOAA's Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory in Seattle to its Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in Princeton. He was a civil servant at GFDL for a number of years, before moving across the street a few years ago to become a professor in the Geosciences Department at Princeton University, where he's also the director of the High Meadows Environmental Institute and deputy director of the Cooperative Institute for Modeling the Earth System. But Gabe's story really starts in Venezuela. After being born in Boston, he spent most of his childhood there, moving back to the USA and to New Jersey in particular when he was 16, fleeing the runaway inflation, deterioration of living standards, and other difficulties that came with the Chavez regime. You can't hear Gabe's Venezuelan background in his perfect American accent, which he describes learning from TV shows as a high school student, but it gives him a particular perspective on what's happening in the United States now, and at the end of the episode, we get into what our democracy's accelerating failures do and don't have in common with Venezuela's. We also talk about the challenges of communicating our science to the media, what kinds of climate science do and don't matter to real-world mitigation or adaptation efforts, and other issues that we've both struggled with. And of course, we talk a lot about science, such as the relationship between the Madden-Julian Oscillation and ENSO, between the Indian Ocean and the monsoon, and most of all, the relationships between tropical cyclones and climate. It was even harder to get through Gabe's biography than it is with most guests, because we kept getting distracted going down different paths talking about all the different issues that fascinate or torment us both. Besides being an amazingly productive and influential scientist whose impacts are both broad and deep, Gabe is also an open book, full of ideas. Talking to Gabe is always stimulating and a lot of fun, and I think you'll get that too from this conversation with Gabe Vecchi. Welcome, Gabe. Thanks for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's start where we always do, if that's okay, which is with your biography. Okay. So 
Where's Gabe Becky from? Where I was born is straightforward. I was born in Boston while my parents were in graduate school. And uh, where I'm from is a little more complicated because uh, I, I left Boston at an early age to uh, grow up in, in Venezuela, where, where my dad's from. And uh, my mom is from the United States. And, and then I started high school in the United States. We, we moved back to the United States in the 80s. And so I'm, I'm from Venezuela. I'm from New Jersey. You know, wait, wait. So uh, let me let me get the first of all, what were your parents studying in grad school? So my my dad was studying electrical engineering at, at MIT and my mom uh, was studying art history at uh, BU. And they, they, they had, themselves had met in college. Uh, my dad had had come to the U.S. on some scholarships and ended up in, in Ithaca, where my mom is from I see. At, at Cornell. And, and that's where they met. So at what age did you go to Venezuela? Not entirely sure. <laughs> it's, really? <laughs> I, I went back and forth a few times. It's, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Well, just give me a but, rough ballpark. I mean, uh, anywhere between six months and two years, somewhere around. Okay, so the before you remember is the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my, my parents were, you know, they were young graduate students. Uh, my mom actually, this was a, a time uh, she was forced to no longer be a graduate student um, because of having me. Something that I that sort of I, I keep deep inside when I think about uh, sort of the pressures we put on each other and how they yeah. conflict with family. Uh, so my mom had to leave graduate school, not out of her own volition, but pressured. Even parents with the most resources in the world are stressed and challenged. And so they they leaned on my grandparents a lot. And so I got to spend a lot of good time with my grandparents uh, as an as an early kid. So, so that's why I, I don't know how to start counting. Did I go when I was a few months old? Did I go when I was two years old? You know, when my mom fully finally joined, when my dad fully finally joined, who knows? Right. But the point is what your memories begin in Venezuela. Yeah. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have brother and a sister that are considerably younger than me. My brother is nine years younger than me and my sister is 11 years younger than me. Okay. They were born in Venezuela, but they largely grew up in the United States. So it was a... I guess, you know, because I because we've known each other a long time and I know that you're from Venezuela, but I've heard your stories of how you acquired your perfect American accent. But you had an American parent, so somehow you didn't get it from your mom. You didn't get the... Uh... Well, so I got the ear for the accent from my mother, right? Mm-hmm. So my mother spoke English to me so that I could understand it. And I understood it as well as anyone understands English. My English, when I moved to the United States at age 14, was had an accent. And... Um, I, I, I distinctly remember sort of the moment where I decided I had to get rid of my accent was I was standing by the lockers and uh, there was these two girls from my, my same class and uh, they were both blonde and it was fascinating because there was all these blonde people and, and I was like, oh, they're, they're, they're so cute or something. And, and I was so excited that they would be talking to me. But then they asked me to start repeating words yeah. and then they started laughing. And in my mind's eye, they were pointing and laughing at me. You know, you know how like you remember things different from how they actually were? Uh, so I remember that the image that I had in my mind was one of, of mockery. In reality, I think it was more of a giggling where they thought it was really cute. But I, I determined <laughs> at that moment that I had to get rid of this accent. That I wasn't going to have people laugh at me. Maybe you should have kept it. I should have. <laughs> you don't know how many times in college I wish I had had it back. <laughs> you couldn't do it on purpose? <laughs> Cannot do it on purpose. So I would go home and I, I, would, I would imitate the television shows. And uh, I would really try to imitate the people that I thought were coolest. Like, you know, it was the mid-80s. So the Fonz was, to me, really cool. 
you know. And so try to imitate that. And that my accent is a composite of mid eighties television. Right. Right. You speak many languages, right? Even more yeah. than Spanish and English. I mean, w- remind me what they all are. Well, so I, I grew up in a, in a family that we're Venezuelan, but we're also Italian. And so there was a lot of Italian spoken at home, so I could understand that. So, so it was my mom would speak English to me. My grandparents would speak Italian to each other, mm-hmm. and I would answer back in Spanish. And so there was all these languages going on all the time. And then eventually I realized after my grandfather died, my grandmother took me to Italy, and I only spoke Spanish, and I had never spoken Italian in my life. And then I, I went out for a walk and I realized I had to speak Italian. And, and it turns out that I, I mean, I could speak a version of Italian that could get me understood. And then over time, <laughs> it got better. And, uh, and then in high school, I studied French. And there was a time when I could actually speak it and I would read it. Um, I haven't used it very much recently. And uh, my, my wife is Swedish and we go to Sweden relatively right. regularly. And so it's, I've been learning Swedish along with my kids and, and I can right. defend myself That's and I good. speak with the Skonska, this, this Southern Swedish accent. So That's like, the most impressive because the Spanish and yeah. Italian wouldn't help you with that one. No, don't help at all. <laughs> so, okay. So tell me about like the experience of growing up in Venezuela and then leaving and coming to the U S like, how did that all happen? So, yeah, so how did it happen? Um, well, the living there, it was the 80s and 70s in Venezuela. It was, it was an oil-rich nation. My dad was working at the National Research Institute there, which was inside of a national park. And so much of the time we lived inside of a national park surrounded by all sorts of academics and their children. Wow. And, and it, was, it was beyond idyllic. It, it was... It was non-representative of life in Venezuela, but it was very representative of my life there. And then we moved in with my grandparents eventually. And so we lived there also in in the coastal mountains. So it was mild climate. And to me, it was the most normal life. And I think to many of us, but it, 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 you know, a lot of outdoor time uh, running around uh, with friends, going into the creeks and woods and uh, just a norm, what to me was a normal life. It's not a life I think that can be had in Venezuela anymore. Um, I think conditions yeah. there are, are less safe. And, and so people tend to remain much more at home. There was a big devaluation of the, of the local currency, the Bolivar, in the early 80s. And so all of us found everything we owned worth first like half and then another half and then another half of its value. And, mm-hmm. and sort of that became frustrating. Um, and my dad had tried to set up a... I hadn't tried. He had succeeded in setting up a personal computer company down there. Him and his students had designed the motherboard and were importing components to, to sort of like build this machine. And they were selling it uh, mm-hmm. internally in Venezuela and started planning to sell it in Latin America and sort of build up a sort of a tech company in Venezuela. Uh, and my dad got frustrated at sort of the what was involved with uh, importing things and the and sort of the whole just how difficult it was to do things in what you would recognize as, a, as, as the right way. Just pay the right price, pay your taxes, move on. We were fortunate. My mom was American, and so we had an American citizenship. And uh, my dad had connections, and so we moved to New Jersey. And uh, that, was, that was it. Uh, we, what we town? Gone back. I originally Morristown, but then I went to most of my high school in Somerville, which is just it's in Somerset County. It's... Um, just a town in, in, in New Jersey. So I, I had a great time, good friends. 
So was it a shock to this? Must have been a shock to the system at the beginning, but it sounds like you got over it quickly. Did I get over it? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> do you get over shocks, right? Uh, you just sort of internalize whatever it is. I mean, it was a massive shock. There was a combination of sort of, a, of excitement because at least to me, U.S. culture was so cool, right? You would see all the movies, you would see, right, uh, I don't know, the Karate Kid or whatever. And, and so you would see American culture. In many ways, we imitated it, right? So if I could get a hold of a pair of Levi's, I would be so excited. Every, you know, you would try and wear Levi's and you try and wear Vans and OP shirts and whatever, you know, whenever you can find imported clothes. And to be going into the United States, it was like, wow, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be part of, of this. And, and so there was the excitement. Uh, I remember, you know, uh, just going back to the lockers, uh, you know, I'm using lockers. We didn't have lockers, right? And, right. Uh, but then it was, once you get a little deeper than the movie version, you realize that there's a lot of things that were just shocking, right? That um, the having the accent, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that that was an issue that uh, sort of the really ingrained, very explicit ethnic and, and racial hierarchies or, or, or structures that existed here. Not that there weren't and aren't those in Venezuela, but they were different. When you grow up with certain arbitrary and, and usually destructive sort of cultural hierarchies, you don't recognize them because you're living in them. But then when all of a sudden you end up in a new setup, you're like, wait a second, how, how does this make any sense? Right? Well, why are you doing it this way? Right? And then you can actually look back and say, wait, we were doing it a, another way that didn't make sense either. So anyway, that part was, was shocking. But I, I, I think I eventually uh, settled in and I found some friendships in Somerville that, that last to this day, you know, and, and other friendships that have sort of winnowed out over time, but that I've found to be very influential in my life. There are people that I think about a lot. Uh, I don't see often, if at all, but I, I hope they're doing well. Do you still have family in Venezuela? I still have family in Venezuela. I have my uh, grandmother is there. She's kicking, still doing wow. well. She's in her late 90s. Wow. Uh, my uncle and aunt are there. My cousins are there. And, and we stay in touch. Have you been back recently? I haven't been back uh, since I went with my wife in the early 2000s. I've thought about going back. Um, the logistics of actually going back and forth are complicated. There's some rules about which passports you need to use when you go in and out. And I've, I've found it very difficult to get. Yeah, it, it's, it's a whole issue. And rather than navigate these, I, we haven't really done it recently. Yeah. So when did you get interested in science? Did that start from the beginning, like from your dad or did that come later? Or? I don't know if I ever realized until, until I was in college or late in college that I realized that I was interested in science. I was good at math that I knew from, from whenever. And so I was interested in math. I very much enjoyed it. I realized, uh, so I, I, I was doing math in college and, and really having a great time. But then I never, I, I, I started asking myself, what sort of job am I going to get? And I, I hadn't really thought about it. I was a, a sophomore in college. And I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do after college. And I started talking to my friends. So I was saying, oh, yeah, you can get take your actuary exams and, and, and become an actuary with a, with a math degree. I didn't even know what that was. But I said, okay, that sounds whatever. And then, <laughs> then I looked into what it was, and it didn't seem that appealing. <laughs> and I was like, well, I got to figure this out. And um, I ran into a friend of our family. His name is Don Altman. He was an oceanographer. And I was introducing him. I was like, you can be an oceanographer? It's like, what? Right. 
Uh, you can study the ocean for a living. Right. Who knew? And then I, I, I got connected at Rutgers with uh, Dale Haidvogel's group up there. At the, and um, Mohammed Eskandarani was a postdoc then working with him. He was my, my sort of my first direct mentor. And I, and I got a research position there. And that's actually when I realized that I love science. I, I was like, wait, we get to do this. You get to study the ocean. Uh, you get to think about these problems. You can use math to sort of understand how, how this all works. So, so that, that was really, I guess, for some people, they discovered a lot earlier. I, I waited a while to figure it out. And let's see, I'm trying to, so when would this have been? You're, I think of you as a couple of years younger than me, maybe. So. Yeah, so this was, it must have been in 1993, the okay. summer of 1993. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, so what was your major at Rutgers? I, my major at Rutgers ended up being math. I started in civil engineering because I was interested in, in building bridges. Yeah. Uh, that's as much thought as I had put into it, right? It's like, oh, civil engineers build bridges. I wanna, and, and That's true, but. Most civil engineers don't build bridges. <laughs> and then um, after a year, I decided, oh, I didn't like that. But I did like philosophy. And um, so I said I was going to do philosophy in college. And my dad, I told him, like, yeah, dad, I'm going to do philosophy in college. And, and he, he sort of calmly, he was like, yeah, he, didn't, he didn't lose his calm or anything. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. He thought about math. It's like <laughs> philosophy, but you can get a job. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I was thinking about sort of why is it that I do what I do? Great. Let's go right there. What's the answer? I don't know. (laughs) So the reason I started doing what I do has a lot less to do with most of what I do now than I could have imagined, right? I profoundly love the ocean. I think the ocean is awesome. I love the ocean and the way I love it is probably no different than the way that the person that knows the least about oceanography also loves the ocean. I love being underwater, completely surrounded by warm water, salty water. I love feeling the waves when you're underwater. I leave floating on the ocean. I love looking at the ocean. And when I found out, oh, you can use math to study the ocean and also make a living, I was like, phenomenal. That's what it was. It was right. very selfish. But you didn't become one of the seagoing guys. No, I did not become one of the seagoing guys because I, I came in with a skill set of, of math and computers. And so I, I went to sea. I've been to sea. Yeah. Uh, I would love to go to sea more. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not my strength, right? It's, it, it's not what I – I would love to be better at building instruments. I've, well, I've never had tried my hand at building an instrument, right? Uh, so, so you end up doing what you end up doing. And I have ended up studying the atmosphere a lot more than the ocean, in part because when I started studying the tropical Pacific, I realized that sort of the, the, the ocean response was relatively straightforward if you knew the atmospheric forcing, but we didn't know the atmospheric forcing, right? And, and right. so spending time and understanding the atmospheric forcing was like the hardest part of the problem. And then you could just sort of project it onto wave modes. Or, right. But why do I do what I do now? I think there's still part of that initial bit where I love the ocean in the totally sort of, I think it's a human way. There's also the, as you start doing this, right, there is the process of discovery is, is so exciting. I was thinking about when the sort of the trim microwave imager, the TMI, sea surface temperature data first started coming out in the late 90s. And we could see sea surface temperatures under clouds. Right. 
So for the first time, they, unless, as long as there wasn't very heavy wind and a lot of strong rainfall, all of a sudden you can start seeing things in the ocean that you weren't able to see before. And it wasn't that, that I was seeing something that other people hadn't been clever enough to see. I just happened to be the first person to look at that data in that way. Mm. And all of a sudden you see new things. And, and that, I think that's another reason why I do things. So, so like this feeling of discovery, like you're finding something new. It's, it's that feeling of opening that box and seeing what's inside of it, right? So these yeah. are selfish reasons why I do what I do. And, yeah. and none of them are part of any plot, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a part of a right. plot. But then there is, I think, part of, part of what, we, what, what, what over time has become a reason why I'm looking at what I'm looking at is because of this sort of my interest in what has been sort of behind some of these notable changes and or not, maybe not notable changes, notable events, right? In, in hurricanes and, and other things, it, you realize, well, if, if these have a, a climate change component, it would be really good to know about it, right? And, and, yeah. and so there, it, there does eventually come in beyond sort of like the selfish and the curiosity driven piece uh, an effort to try and understand the world in a way that matters to society though i'm i'm wondering about is the extent to which are the key questions in mitigation of climate change and adaptation uh, to climate change to what extent are they are they fundamentally constrained by our understanding of the climate system and to what extent and we've talked about this, I think, in the past. But to what extent is it? it, it are there other issues and uh, that are, that are more important? And and I exactly, I I don't know. I mean, you're tracing the contours of of my whole you know set of issues, which is, and I think what I've learned through these conversations is that a lot of us are having modest variations of the same experience, which is that we entered this field with you know some sense that it was societally relevant. And yeah. some value on that, but mostly just out of, you know, seeking intellectual satisfaction, you know, seeking the joy of discovery. And, and you know, I mean, you can go and there's other other kinds of science you can do that would also be interesting, but that wouldn't have the same uh, societal relevance. And so we, that might have been a factor in choosing this field. But for most of us, I think there are exceptions. But I think for many of us of your generation and mine and even substantially younger until recently, like that was the main thing. And then as the climate problem has come to seem more and more concerning, more and more immediate, we've had this reaction of wanting to be doing something more. And then there's the question of, but does what we do matter, given that we already kind of know it's a huge problem, we're not doing that much about it. So maybe our knowledge isn't the limiting thing. So how are we even helping? You know, and yeah, I think a lot of us are going through that. And it's a struggle. But I mean, I, so I, I do think that we are there. We are helping, right? So uh, this exercise of going through and figuring out is climate sensitivity positive, and between two and a half and five degrees every so many years, and doing all these things that is important because I think it would be great news if somehow we figured out that we were wrong and climate sensitivity was a quarter degree. I, I think it is sure. almost impossible that that is actually the case. Right, but it would it would make certain things. I mean, we'd still have to deal with the ocean acidification issue, uh, you know. And and there's a lot that that we would no longer be able to explain, and so we would have to learn a lot more about the system in order to to, to explain it. But I think it would be good news. 
and so going through this exercise is is okay. But I I I, I think that it's it, the the rate limiting step on mitigation policy is not whether climate sensitivity is two and a half degrees or five degrees. I think exactly. You imagine a world where we know with a hundred percent certainty that it's either of those. Yeah. And the next steps that we take would be essentially the same. Exactly. And we're not uh, taking them. So changing the number is not apparently the yeah. issue. <laughs> it's no, not. Exactly. I mean, I agree we're helping, but it's just a question of, I think the degree to which we're helping is not what we might have imagined 30 years ago when we understood the world somewhat differently than we do now after having seen the last 30 years. It's or, probably or whatever true. number of years you want to, you know. Yeah, no, it's probably true, but but at the same time, and this is this is the other piece though, and I think where we are contributing, right, is and 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 I think that the, I imagine in my mind that the benefits are are going to be more tangible. There is more on than what you would call sort of adaptation science, right? Yep. Um, getting a better sense of what the odds of certain extreme events or changes in hydroclimate or changes in the statistics of El Nino or, or whatever are likely to be. But also what, what are the odds of certain extreme events even now or over the last 30 years? And I think, right. I think we've learned a lot more sort of like each of us does our little bit to push that boulder forward and the forward movement of that particular boulder has been greater than, than on climate sensitivity. And I think that there's a lot also more room to move that forward over the next decades to, to give people the ability to make better decisions, I think. So by the and, way, did you, I mean, did you read, I wrote a paper saying these things, called usable climate science is adaptation science. So it's actually. No, I didn't read it, but I should have read it. And then I wouldn't have had to say it. You could have written it. You. you could have written it. <laughs> well, you know. No, but, but I, mean, know I mean, I think the other part of it besides, and this is the thing for the reasons you just said, but also that. I think adaptation, there's a lot more actors in adaptation of a lot more kinds. So there's more yeah. like chances to do something. Whereas mitigation is so sort of global and government driven that it's hard to, you know, it's so political that it's hard to make a dent. It is. It, and it's. And the forces it, against it are so powerful too. The forces against it are, are what they are. And the other, the other thing about adaptation and now I, now I need to find that paper. We should also talk about the process of how we do what we do, because I find that I'm less able to read papers I would have liked to have read as yeah, time goes well, on. Well, yeah. Tell um, me about it. Yeah. I used to be able to read every article in Journal of Climate. Right. So I would come out and I would read every article in Journal of Climate. Then wow, I got to Really? Actually read the whole article? Yep. Wow. I never you know. did quite that. I used to read a lot more than I do now, but. But but then it got to I could I could read all the abstracts and then a couple articles, and and then I could read all the titles in a couple abstracts and maybe an article. Now you only read the things you have to review, right? Yeah, pretty. Much. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's partly that's partly that there's way more science being done. It's partly that we're older and busier, and you know, maybe losing mental faculties. Reader. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we we got right into the whole philosophical thing, but I don't want I don't want to lose your trajectory though. The trajectory is important to the philosophy thing, right? Because right. how you get into something, it, yeah, it, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, well, what were you thinking? So, did you go straight to grad school out of undergrad? 
Yeah, I, I, I went straight to, to grad school out of college. Um, I, and what was your thought process there? Just, I like this, let's keep going, or was there more than that? I guess I'll tell you the truth. I don't, I don't think too far ahead in most of my decisions. Mm-hmm. And it seemed fun at the time. I was really having a lot of fun in, in the bit of lab work that I was doing uh, with, with Mohammed and Dale. And, uh, and, 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 and Kate Hedstrom was there too. And I was, I was like, I want to do more of this. And if I go to graduate school, I get to do more of this too. And so the next step was I am going to enjoy graduate school and, and no thought about what I was going to do next after graduate school. And, and so maybe if I had taken time between college and graduate school that I could have come up with a grand plan for my life and, and planned it all out. I don't know. But what would, I, what would have happened then? I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe I would do you something useful in my time. I don't know. Uh, so that's my, been my, my decision-making strategy is to sort of identify something that seems like a good idea and then do it. Because so many of the, the, the things that affect the paths that we take are totally out of our control, even totally invisible to us, that spending too much time planning uh, beyond making sure that you're not making a really obviously bad decision is, I think, uh, a waste of energy. And, and and it keeps you from sort of from discovering things. I think about, I've, I've driven across the U.S. a few times and, and I've gone on a bunch of road trips in, in different directions. And, and, if, and if you set out with too clear an agenda, you don't actually enjoy what you're doing because you don't run out of gas or you don't pull over to have lunch uh, at a rodeo or whatever. And, and those are the, the, the cool things. And, and so I think in general with life, it's, it's, it's good to allow randomness to creep in and keep you out of, of going down too neat a path. Who knows if I'd taken time, I would have realized that I, I didn't want to be poor in graduate school and I would have gotten a job that paid me more for those years. And then, and I would have been doing something that was, I don't know, I would have become an actuary after all. And there's nothing wrong with being an actuary. Actuaries are really important, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't know the odds of things in, in a way that's usable. But still, it, it probably wouldn't have been the right thing for me. Right. All right. So um, so you're finishing Rutgers and you decided to go to grad school. Yep. And I know that you ended up in Washington because we met there. But was that a, was that a simple... Uh process or so so the the process of 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 deciding whether to go to washington or go somewhere else was i had had really had winnowed down the choice to two places uh one was washington and one was another place on the west coast and so uh the reason i chose washington and this is this i'll stand behind right this is this is the way to make decisions please is i winnowed it down to two good options Uh uh-huh and then I chose something almost arbitrary to make the distinction. And what I chose was where my dog would be happier. What was the other choice? The other choice was, uh, was, was Scripps in San Diego. And I, and I thought that we would have to drive everywhere. And, and, I see. And, and anyway, that was, that was my, my decision. But ultimately, either of them would have been a perfectly perfect decision. Right. Or, or right. what would have made it a good or bad decision would have been determined by everything else I made. I did after the point that I made the decision. And so moving past the decision as fast as possible and in a way that that was am- as amusing and stress free as possible to me was a way to do it. Right. And so thinking about what my dog would want was that. 
And, and so we often talk to our students and our postdocs and our friends about decision they make. And, and I, uh, I try and pass that decision-making philosophy along. Uh, some of them are less amused by it than others, but <laughs> I think it's a good one. And you, am I right in recalling that you were a student in the oceanography department or were you an atmosphere? Yeah, I was a student in the, in the oceanography department. I also right. did a master's in applied math because I realized at a certain point that we were all doing, uh, I had to take two extra classes or something and do a, oh, okay. a thesis. But the atmospheric scientists and the oceanographers, for the first year, we took the same classes. So we became right. sort of a larger cohort. Right. And I, But do I remember right, didn't you work at PMEL part of it? I work at PMEL. So my advisor was Ed Harrison or my advisor is Ed Harrison, uh, you know, and, and he, he was at PMEL. Pacific Marine Environmental Lab, which the, is yeah, the Pacific, NOAA lab somewhere distance from the campus, right? Yeah, it was, it was a distance from the campus. It was on Sandpoint Way. Right, right, right. So, right. so I, I, that was, that was actually a nice setup because I had uh, an office on campus, right? Or in, in oceanography and an office at PMEL. I could, tell people in oceanography that I was going to PML and I could go tell people at PML that I was going to oceanography. And then every now and again, I would actually just be at a coffee shop. As you know, especially the process of writing the thesis, I I found it to be that one of those things that I had to be, had to keep changing the location I was in, in order to make any forward movement, because I was always working on the same single thing and I felt stagnant. And yes. so if I could at least change my environment, I could make yes. some forward movement. Yes. No, I know that. That's why the coffee shops are good. Yeah. You sometimes you just got to be somewhere else. And sometimes yeah. also having other people watch you work is, is helpful. It's a, you know, different people have different psychologies around that, but for me, it, it helps. Yeah. And, and ultimately it got done. Right. So that's all. And, and we should say, what it was it about? You kind of mentioned a little bit, but. Yeah, my, my, my PhD thesis was on the role of subseasonal, so less than seasonal uh, time scale wind variability in El Nino. So these these phenomena known as westerly wind bursts, uh, yeah. they last a few days, and the extent to which they were important to leading to waveguide warming at the onset of El Nino. It's, Did you reach a conclusion about that? Yeah, they are important, in fact, to the warming of El Nino. And, and one of the the questions was about how best to think about them. And this, I think, still remains an active question in the literature. Uh, should you think about these, these bursts of wind as primarily just random sort of additive noise, something totally external to the El Nino system that comes along and, and kicks off the system? Or should you think of it more as what would be described as multiplicative noise where, or state dependent noise where, you know, the precise day on, on which one westerly wind burst will happen is random, but the odds are tilted by the large scale state of the system. And, and, and so that um, there's something that predisposes the West Pacific before an El Nino event to have more westerly wind bursts. And I, I think observationally, uh, we made the case, and you know, Ed Harrison and I, and in my thesis, that there was actually a preconditioning, a slight shift eastward of the warm pool in the West Pacific that increased the odds of wind burst before El Nino events. Mm. And uh, so, all right. The basic idea being that in El Nino, the East Pacific Equatorial Ocean warms up, and it warms up in part because the winds change direction to blow in such a way that it makes the ocean warm up, but then the ocean 
feeds back to make the winds do that. So it's a coupled system. And so what you're looking at, but that's all perceived as happening slow, sort of slowly. Yeah. And you're looking at the fact that actually the winds are fluctuating fast. So sometimes there's a sharp burst. And I mean, this is a little bit of a scientific tangent, but maybe it's not like there was a time, I guess a few years after you finished when there, I perceived that there was a lot of interest in this topic for a while, like MJON, so interaction and so on. I went to a workshop once at GFDL. I think it might've been before you got there. No, I was there. We were, were you I think, there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This was the last time I really paid attention to this subject closely, but I found it really confusing because my perception of it was, of course, the westerly wind bursts matter if the background against which you measure it is there being no westerly wind burst and everything else being the same. But if you think about the time average, you know, the right. fact that it has fluctuations on top of it for that to do something on the slow end. So time scale requires something nonlinear or something. And a lot of the discussion about it didn't seem to fully account for that. A lot of it seemed to be confused by people defining things in different ways and sort of framing the problem differently, such that they were kind of talking past each other. I don't know. I found it really confusing. That, that is exactly how it was. Right. And so I, I ended up <laughs> right, leaving good. that because at a certain point it was like almost medieval conversations sort of discussing sort of definitions and sort of interpretations <laughs> of texts. And I was like, ah, come on now. So in my, my view still is, is that the MJO and Westerly Windburst are two different things. Okay, very, very good. So the, the relaxation of the trade winds at the onset and to sustain El Nino isn't best described as a slow process. It occurs because it is convective. It is these convective anomalies. Yeah. It, it occurs in bursts, right? right? You have these multi-day bursts of wind that are westerly and they're westerly in the net. Yep. And sometimes they occur during a Manjulian oscillation event and sometimes they occur outside of Manjulian oscillation event. But the Manjulian oscillation involves swings from easterly to westerly. Right. But then we got into these big discussions, but well, what if the Manjulian oscillation is actually just a westerly package and we are defining it to have a zero anomaly, you know, a zero anomaly over its lifetime. I don't right. really think about this anymore. And <laughs> and it got kind of so campy is the wrong I don't don't mean campy. Well, it started to seem a little bit semantic in some way. Yeah. I mean a little bit because the all these things are defined by you know, the definition of what's an MJ or what's a Westerly Windburst is ultimately a little bit arbitrary, right? There it's not like a rigorous God given like thing that tells you what it is. So we're drawing boundaries around things. And if you draw the boundary differently, you get a different answer. And it's, I don't know, it seems like people were talking in circles. Well, it, it's not that there wasn't ever a good problem there. It just seemed to be a cultural thing where people were sort of not, not you know, there wasn't a consistent set of definitions. And yet the answer sort of really depends on the definition. So so it was somehow just wasn't that constructive. I don't know. Well, yeah, it wasn't that constructive. And I think a lot of us realized it and left. Right. right. Okay, so describe that. So you finished your thesis and then... Like what happened? I sort of had the perception that you kept working on it for a little while longer, didn't you? Or or what happened? Well, I I know I, I actually I left and I started studying the Indian Ocean. Um, ah, right, right, right. Okay, so and, same sort of over. I mean, still sort of tropical ocean atmosphere, but a little bit different, right? Yeah, switch the basin, right? So instead yeah. of having the the ocean warmer in the in the west, you have the ocean uh, warmer in the east. And are you like a postdoc by this time, or what? Yeah, I was a postdoc for a little bit, and then um, uh, I was going to leave Seattle, but then Ed Harrison approached me with there was an opportunity to stay in Seattle. I was like, yes, I'll stay in Seattle. 
and and I stayed as a as a research scientist for a few more years studying at PMEL or were you at PMEL? Well, it was with the University of Washington, so with Jaseo. Okay, right, right, right. And I was sitting in PMEL Joint Institute for the, yeah, the Joint Institute for the Study of Atmospheres and Oceans. Right. So it was like a a, a NOAA University of Washington collaborative uh, yeah. institute that was in that old bank building on the on the. Down. Did you sit in there? Yeah, I, I, I had I sat there sometimes, but most of the time I sat at PMEL. But that was a that was a good group. So Mike Wallace was in 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 that yeah. building, and you know Batisti was in that building, and yeah, you, didn't you sit there sometimes too? Or no, no, I mean I no. visited a couple times, but no, Sarachik was there, and yeah, Sarachik was there. John Chang was a postdoc while I was John there. John Chang was there. I think Michaela Biasutis. Mi- Michaela was there. Um, uh, Dan Vimont was there. Right. So I start thinking about right. it. it I like, knew wow. all those characters, but I didn't hang out there really. They they all would come to to uh, atmospheric science where I was a postdoc. If I didn't say that, just so people understand, I was there for part of your, you know, for a couple of years. I didn't have to go there to see those people, basically. So I no, they would come up. <laughs> but you know, if, if I think, you know, to who was in Seattle at that time, it was it was a pretty. I mean, it, you know, the University of Washington remains an impressive collection of people. Oh yeah, but but that was that was a fun time to be there. Uh, yeah, well, I think there was a period where we were probably there. I don't want to say at the end of it, but probably towards the tail end of it, where Washington was sort of it sort of defined the field of atmospheric science in a yeah. in a way. Like so many of the textbooks were published by people there. It just seemed like a lot of the field passed through there and it sort of set the, t- you know, the, the curriculum had like all the classes that kind of defined the field at that time. And it just sort of seemed like, you know, it was a, a dominant institution. And I think that changed not so much because the place declined, but just because the field sort of changed in different ways. And, you know, no single place can play that role anymore. It's gotten too big or something, but well, it also, uh, the people that were there left, right? And so you have, you know, you yeah. went to, to Columbia, Dave Thompson went to Colorado State, right? Michaela went to Columbia. So you have all they had these, good students after that. I mean, they, they had good students, but, but you can't, if you're doing your job right, and you, you know, you're, you're an educational institution that is training really great people to do great things, and they go out and they set up similar systems for the outside eventually the differential is going to go down, right? If you're doing your job right. Right. So, yeah. So, so, so sort of these, these iconic uh, intellectual centers should sort of seed their own loss of, 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 of sort of dominance. Yeah, I think that's true. But also we all remember our own cohort better than we know the other ones. That's true. And, and, you know, and, and, and everything was way better when we were there and, <laughs> right. and, and it Grunge was, was still and cool. And the, yeah, <laughs> the whole country didn't have Starbucks yet. Yeah. right. <laughs> Only us. Yeah. And, Actually it was and, kind of already getting to be everybody. Yeah. And, and, but, but let me have that memory Okay, fine. that I know isn't real. I know it's not true. What makes sort of memories. True. It's sort of true. It's sort of true, but, but what makes the memories good is, is that you have them. Not necessarily that they're an accurate representation of the past relative to the present. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is, you know, it is a feature of this field that may, or maybe it's all science or maybe it's our, you know, is that that makes it what it is 
and that I kind of struggle with in this era where, you know, we're a lot of us, including me, are thinking we should reduce our carbon footprint is that like, you know, the nature of academia is that you make all these friends when you're young and then everybody goes everywhere, like you said. But yeah. because we we work in a field that we're all flying around the world, you know, going to conferences or doing field work or whatever, we kind of still see each other pretty often. And these cohorts stay kind of meaningful. It's getting challenged in various ways now I mean, by the pandemic where everything went on Zoom and by, you know, a, a lot of us feeling that we're flying too much. And yeah, I don't know. I and, kind of struggle with that because I think it's an important part of the culture that we have these and not only the people you went to school with, but also the people that you met, you know, when you were at these conferences. I mean, it really is a global culture, right? We really like you can go to some, you know, you can go to the other half of the, some other country where you've never met anybody and you don't know the language, you don't know nothing. And if you call up people in the right university department or lab and you say, hi, I'm gay, but, you know, can I can I give a talk? They'll say, sure. And you'll go and spend the day and it'll be just like you were anywhere else. And it's a really and it's, it's a great, great thing. And then you make new friends and yeah, yeah. but it's hard it's, to know if, yeah, you know, I, so, and, and I think this is especially given the pandemic where we have our, our interactions are forced to be virtual. And what is amazing is how, how much of the real thing we're able to replicate from the virtual, right? Yeah. Number one. It is astounding that we can, you know, so much of a real human interaction can be replaced virtually. But what is very clear, and I think all of us are so aware of it, is that it doesn't replace everything. And that little bit that is no. missing is so important. So, okay, but I, I want to make sure we still get to the story of Gabe. So we left somewhere yeah. you were a postdoc sort of switching to the Indian Ocean. So you're still right. I was switching the Indian Ocean and, and sort of did, did a, a bit of work looking at uh, sort of air sea coupling in the Indian Ocean and impacts of ocean temperatures on the monsoon, and right. uh, I was really enjoying that. And, and there, I got involved with with a group of, of people, an international group. We were talking about how our sort of relationships are so global. Right. Uh, so this international group, where Peter Webster was one of the big drivers to right. design a, a uh, an Indian Ocean observing system, right? Uh, right you've been involved right. with with that as well. And, I have and, not. No. Well, you made some observations in the Indian Ocean. And, oh, I uh, right. I was in. Yeah, right. I was one of the. And I'm sure, I, if I remember correctly, you all did pitch out some from some of the ships involved in that experiment. Argo floats that are considered part of this Rama observing. Okay. System okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I was or, in Piston, which is was not actually in the Indian Ocean, but it was. The ship had been in um, Misobab, which was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and that was actually fun to think about how we were going to better observe a, a basin that was so crucial to, to global climate, but that had been relatively unobserved. This is program is called the program and that it would be called Rama. And I forget right, right, what right, right, that right, right. Uh, acronym uh, ends up standing for, but it was an equivalent to the, the Toga tower array and right, the right. Parada array in the Atlantic, the, the tower array in the Pacific, which we should say, because, you know, although this is not like the podcast, not science education, but yeah. just to get a few things. The key thing is moorings, right? So kind of like, yeah, so the, the, the key thing, is 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 moored observation. So what we want to do is from space we can observe the surface of the ocean to some degree. So we can see how warm the surface is, how cold. Uh, we can even estimate winds by looking at the ripples from space. Uh, and now there's even measurements of salinity uh, from space. 
But all at the surface, and the ocean is on average uh, three miles deep. And right. uh, and so in order to make predictions, in order to understand how the atmosphere and ocean interact, we wanted to get measurements down at depth. And um, in the Pacific, this was done primarily and historically since the 80s or maybe late 70s by buoys that are fixed in place and had a surface component that could send information from satellites. And then it had different thermometers at different depths. In the There's like a cable running from a floating buoy down to the spot in the ocean and then oceanographic instruments can be on the cable. Or yeah, the, the oceanographic instrument. So there's a weight bearing cable and then there's an instrument cable, a data cable. Right, right, um, right. And it's um, and so these were laid out across the Pacific largely to support uh, predictions of El Nino, right? So we could measure the 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 upper ocean temperatures and help better predict El Nino. And the idea was then to expand this type of uh, observing system into the other two tropical basins, into the Atlantic, and the Parada array is in the Atlantic, and then into the Indian Ocean, which was the Rama array, but. As this was happening, as, as this system was being designed and, and we were primarily conceiving of it as using f- these fixed buoys that are sort of chained to the bottom of the ocean, uh, new technologies started coming out. And one of them was these Argo floats. These are floats that uh, sit at so 2,000 meters. So how many miles is that? It's called it a mile and a half down. And they pop up every five to 10 days and measure the full temperature and salinity profile from a mile and a half down to the surface and then send that information out to space. These were new technologies that started to become available. And so then the system was designed to be Mm. made up of these floats and then some fixed moorings. It it was a pretty complex system. It's it's, it's pretty, yeah. 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 So this was designed by a group of people and yeah, it was a, a collection of, of scientists from around the world. And so, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is you, you try and come up with the, what the optimal design strategy is going to be. And then you, then you hit some practicalities, like how much money it costs to put these things out, where the ships are going to go, where the ships aren't going to go. Because then at this time in the 2000s is when uh, sort of the Northwest Indian Ocean, there tends to be a lot of, there was a lot of issues with piracy. Yeah, and, yeah. And and there was the exclusion zone, so ships couldn't go into this area. Right. And the Western Arabian Sea is one of the more fascinating areas. It's it's got some of the warmest waters in the tropics, right? So 31 degrees Celsius. And and in especially in the summer during the southwest monsoon, you have these upwelling filaments that can be I don't know, down to 15 degrees Celsius. So I I don't know how much of that is in Fahrenheit, but so much colder, right? So you have 15 degree water within, you know, a hundred kilometers of 31 degree water. 15 is about 60. 60. Yeah. 31 is 88 or something. 88, 90 degrees. Yeah. So that's, that's a big temperature difference. And, uh, and, and, and these temperature gradients affect the winds and you see the winds changing, but, we can't get the the moorings out there, right? And 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 this and the and the Arabian Sea is where the winds that eventually drop rain over India blow across during the southwest monsoon. So obviously, observing there is is important if you're interested in the southwest monsoon over India. Right. But that that's that's how I spent a few years after after graduate school in Seattle, and then I decided to come to GFDL, the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab here in Princeton, New Jersey. It's a NOAA yep. lab. I came to work with uh, Tony Rosati. Uh, he's, uh, 
sort of a, an oceanographer, tropical oceanographer who I, I knew for years. He was, and then also uh, Gabe Lau and, and Tom Delworth. And then ended up meeting a bunch of people, including Andrew Wittenberg and Brian Soden. Hans Leitma was director at the time. And I met Isaac Held. I remember mm-hmm. I, the geophysical fluid dynamics lab. Is, is, I remember walking in and just walking around the hallway and seeing all the names. Yeah. And it was it was one of these like, wow, okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my perception was and maybe it was still true in that time, but certainly in the 90s still, uh, which is when the probably the first time I visited there was in the late 90s. But yeah, probably still at that time was that although it was a government lab, it really had that ivory tower feeling. All those people you named, you know, were famous for the papers they wrote. I mean, it was, it was, um, I'm sure there was a lab mission and people were working on it to some degree, but it was like an academic institution except with even more freedom in a way because yeah, you don't have to write proposals. You don't have to write yeah. proposals. Some people didn't teach, you know, it was, a, so it was very, I just had the feeling that you could walk in the front door, go back there and start writing equations on the board with Isaac almost any time. I mean, it wasn't quite true, but it felt like that. It did not feel that way later. It felt like the stresses of the real world at some point hit GFDL is the way it looked to me. I think they hit GFDL. But I think they have hit everywhere, right? And this is the conversation oh, yeah. we were having. Oh, about yeah. It. It had, that, yeah. That now, so good news, the world has has become aware of the reality of, of global warming uh, so that now there's a general acceptance of it and there's concern about what, it, what its implications are. And there's a lot of questions from the world about how the things that we know may be useful to the world. That's, a, that's great news. The bad news is right. that now people are interested in what we and, and, and that carries a lot of... Uh, it means of, now you have to go to 19 meetings a day because of that. Exactly. <laughs> Before you would write a paper, nobody would read it. and Well, <laughs> your 10 friends would read it, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I used to mail, physically mail papers to people that I thought, so that they would think, you know, read them. They did, you know, the reprints. Okay, so now I have to tell you my story about this. So, so the younger scientists are too young to know this, but until about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the journals would send you 50 paper copies of your, or whatever yeah. it was, 100 paper copies of your paper. And you'd be, it was really exciting. You know, my paper is published, you get it in the mail. Yeah. It was great, you know, and, but then you'd have a hard time getting rid of them. So you give one to your mom and you bring them to conferences and try to hand them to people and that never went very well. So my story is about, I want to say 2010 or so, I went to a meeting, maybe you were at this meeting, the MJO meeting that was at George Mason. Did you go to that? Yeah. yeah. Madden and Julian were both there. Yes. So this is so we have a thing called the Madden Julian oscillation that you and I both study, and it's named after two guys, Madden and Julian. And they, you know, at this time, 10 years ago, were in their late 70s, early 80s. And they didn't go to very many conferences anymore, but they came to this one and they were talking about the history. And it was great. And I got in this conversation with Roland Madden, the discovery of the MJO, who had published the first paper about it, you know, with Julian in 1970, that, you know, probably has 10 thousand citations by now. So I'm talking to Madden and I'm saying what a great paper it was and how um, I think it was, I was so impressed that they could tell it wasn't a Kelvin wave, that it was something different, right. even though all the later studies said it was, you know, early theoretical studies said it was a Kelvin wave. Madden from, and Julian from the beginning could see that it wasn't. And he argued with me and was telling me that his paper, you know, that they, they didn't understand that as well as I was giving him credit for. So we're having an argument okay. where I'm telling him this paper is better than he's telling me this. And so we get in this, it wasn't a, it was a friendly, you know, friendly yeah. disagreement. 
And he goes, we, there's a coffee break and he comes back and he's got the reprint, this yellowed reprint from <laughs> 1970. And he's underlined in it for me, the part that he's makes his point, you know, which I still disagree yeah. with about the, inter- but whatever. And I'm saying, wow, that's the original reprint. And he says, yeah. And I, and, and we're talking for a while and it becomes apparent that he's giving me this reprint. I'm like, you mean I can have this? You know, this is like getting the signed baseball card from yeah. Hank Aaron, right? I'm like, yeah. I can't believe it. And he says, yeah, it's for you. Like he's got a few of them in his bag. And I'm just thinking like, what chance is there of me ever getting rid of my freaking reprints if Roland Madden, 40 years later, still has a copy of the reprint of the thing that has ten- that invented a whole field? I just thought that was the funniest thing that's ever happened. And I wanted to go around to everybody saying, look, I got the original, but I didn't want to show off because then I thought maybe he didn't have enough and everybody else would want one. Yeah, everybody would want one and they'd take years. You know, and I don't know where it is now. For a while I had it framed and now I don't know what I've done with it. And I, you know, I hope I can find it somewhere. But like... Anyway, so the the story the point of the story is Roland Madden four years forty years later was still carrying around the reprints. To the I know. I have. I, I, so I, I I carried the boxes of reprints from Seattle to GFDL, and then I moved offices in GFDL, and then I moved offices in GFDL again, and then when I came to move here to Princeton, just across the road, I couldn't find them anymore. They were gone. Wow. I don't know where they are. I'm uh, getting ready to finally get rid of mine. I'm saying goodbye to them. I have a process where I've spread them out on tables and I'm I'm trying to think if there's a way I can like turn them into an art project or something, but I think I'm I'm fa- finally facing up to it. I I, I still remember my, my first color figures, how exciting they were. Oh yeah. And they were so yeah. expensive to pub to Oh do my gosh. <laughs> it was like you you were <laughs> <laughs> it was like these combinations. So instead, to save money, we try these weird hatchings and all these. See, oh, this is work. another thing we should explain. So anybody who's not in the, we have a, most of our listeners are in the field and understand this stuff. But there's a few. Right. We're, we're hoping we have a few who aren't. So people don't understand that we actually pay money to publish our papers. We pay the journals money. And, yeah. and in the old days, to pay if it had a color figure in it, it was like ten times more expensive. So we did. You know. So they charge you per page and for p- printing item. And but, now that it's a lot electronic, it doesn't matter. But well, let's go. So let's go back. So you're at GFDL. You're walking the hall, seeing all the great people, and your research interests definitely started evolving. Is at this? Well, time they they, they took a, a huge turn, right? Yeah. I was I was a, a I was interested in interannual variability, interseasonal variability, things that happen on timescales of years and less. And uh, I think before I arrived at GFDL, I had almost no real professional interest in global warming. Essentially none. Did you have any uh, non-professional interest? Oh, of course. And this uh, maybe maybe this is, this leads into some of the struggles you've been having. But I've, as a citizen, as a as a father, as a husband, as a, you know, as a person in this world, I, I I have definite sort of opinions about sort of concerns about the future and 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 sort of the the the, the world and and what the impacts of global warming will be and on things that I care about. But I didn't think that. I don't know. I never, I never thought that I could contribute to those questions while I was in Seattle. It just wasn't part of, yeah. of what I was doing. I didn't have the resources to run these large climate simulations. I didn't. Yeah. So I, I, I just wasn't a part of my professional thing. So it was, you know, it depends on how, on how you look at it. I, but I, I was, I was concerned personally, right? And right. and now I, I really struggle about the extent to which I should be sort of vocal about some of the beyond the science that I do aspects of what I do. Yeah. Because to what extent does it challenge the credibility of the science that, right. that we do? 
Um, have your thoughts evolved on that at all, or have my my thoughts vacillate? It depends on, on what time of day you catch me on it. You know, who better than us to try to communicate the implications of our science? Because we understand the science best. You know, right. 15 minutes later, I'll realize, well, but we don't understand a lot of the social and economic and, and, and right. other issues that connect onto our science where it may be more relevant. Sort of the, the, the shortstop has a duty to, to play shortstop and the pitcher has a duty to pitch. And if, if they try and play right. each other's positions, then, then the whole thing becomes a mess. Right. So, right. so should I just stay in my lane? It's a constantly evolving situation where on average, I, I tend to try and stay on in the science end, but I, I do find myself sort of having public communications and then I find myself retreating and hiding in, in a room for right. a while. So. Well, I mean, so we keep getting distracted from your biography, but this is like too, I can't resist this topic. So, I mean, so you do, you know, we both do some talking to the media and Maybe it's been a year or two since the last time I heard you like being interviewed somewhere, but I have heard it a number of times. And my perception of it is, is that your approach to it is that you're trying to translate the science and speak clearly, but you're very concerned about not overstating it. You want to get all the uncertainties out there and sort of give a balanced view that, you know, what's the sort of sense of the peer reviewed literature and you know, you like, there's a conscious effort not to politicize it or, and, and this kind of thing, yeah. which is like, you're sort of representing the, the field in, in that way. And, and that's how I approached it too. But at some point I started to think that by doing that, I was actually understating it because the listener, as I want to get your reaction to this. And I wonder, you know, if, how you think about it, you know, now, that the listener doesn't share, like that's how we talk to each other. I mean, you're using less jargon, but the right, overall right. sense is you're conveying the way we communicate it to each other and trying to translate that. But in the political debate, like not everybody share, you know, doesn't have the shared understanding that we do. And so I started to feel that the way I was communicating it, let's make it about me instead of about you, is like I was more at risk of understating it than overstating it. The severity of the problem, in other words. That, that, in other words, that when you talk about uncertainty, if you talk about uncertainty too much, the thing I started to worry about is if you talk about uncertainty too much, the listener just starts to think we don't know anything. And so I started getting more, um, I started trying to find ways to put things more strongly while still not to say anything that I couldn't defend if I really had to. But you know, do you see, do you see what I mean? Have you gone through this struggle at all? I, I do go through the struggle all the time, right? Because... So one of the reasons, so there's a lot of, I, I, I think about this all the time and I, yeah. well, cause I know cause you've done it a lot. Yeah. You're one of the more, you know, one of the more visible. Yeah. And, and, and every time I talk to a reporter, I worry about it ahead of time. <laughs> I worry about it afterwards. Yeah. I, you know, I, I go through this whole, because it is important that the world understands the issues that we, we know. So one of the reasons why I, I, I do think it's important to state the uncertainty or say what we don't know yet is because when I try and evaluate whether I trust somebody or not, yeah, yeah, yeah. some of the key things that I'm looking for are, right. will they disagree with me? Right, right. Will they tell me they don't know every now and again? I don't, I don't know what you know. Right. But I know that you don't know everything. And if right. you never tell me that you don't know something, right. Right. then right. you're BSing me. Right. 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 Yeah. So I think to a certain extent, 
there's some level of expressing uncertainty that is necessary in order to be believed, at least mm-hmm. by someone like me. Yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. not. I'm not. No, everybody. I get that, and I get that, and I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. The other bit with the uncertainty, and this is one of these where, if you ask me, the things that scare me the most about sort of the potential of, of future climate change, it's not the things that we're really confident about. Right. It's the fact that we cannot exclude certain really sort of scary scenarios from the right. future. Right. 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 It is it, it is the very uncertainty that yes. is is troubling. Right. Right. But it's it's hard to get that across, though. I mean, so I mean, without I'm, I'm sounding crazy. Right. <laughs> right. 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 I mean, you know, I, I, I think I, so. I'm with you on all of that. I, I guess where I came to is to try what I started to try to do is to try to make an effort, first of all, to emphasize the things that we do know before getting on yeah. to the uncertainty stuff. And then to communicate exactly what you just said, which is that, yes, there's uncertainty, but that's not good. That's the argument you hear from some people on the right, right? Is like, oh, well, there's uncertainty. These guys don't know what that, so that means. We shouldn't worry about it. But that doesn't make any sense at all, right? No. <laughs> the, the, the uncertainty the, means that we're, we're more likely to be in bigger trouble than we think we are than... You know, it's, it's, it's so unlikely that all the things that we're uncertain about will work out better than we think they're likely to. Right. So, but it's hard right. to somehow get that across. And the thing about uh, some of these environmental challenges is that if the weather is nice and it gets nicer, it, it's yes, it's a benefit. If the weather is nice and it gets worse, that generally has carries a greater cost with it. So the the the, the vulnerability is is not symmetric. So how to communicate with people about this and and and. And I struggle with it. And, and if, I, if I look at my, my anthology of media, I will find ones where I am more sort of taking the emphasis on the, on the confidence and the other ones where I'm yeah. – and it just sort of reflects, I think, this internal dialogue that I'm having with myself. And, and, yeah. and you seem to have settled in. I think you're a lot steadier than me in many regards, right? Like, well, I'm not uh, doing that much media in these lately. No, no, but I mean, I mean, as, as a personality, right? I, I tend to be, I tend to be, I tend to, funny. I usually haven't been accused of that particular thing, but that of steadiness yeah. before. Well, maybe not as much of a spaz as me. I mean, maybe that's just, that's just sort of like, <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not quite sure what you're referring to there, but okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but it's, 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 um, I, I think about this. The other, you know, one of the, one of the issues also is I think it's important to recognize, and I'm I'm very aware of this, and I think part of this is is uh, sort of having grown up in in sort of always uh, surrounded by multiple cultures, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of the ways that we naturally interpret what is being said aren't necessarily the ways that other people interpret what is being said, and mm-hmm. and so some of the ways that climate science can be communicated. I think resonates really strongly with people that are already concerned about global warming. Right. But it doesn't necessarily resonate with people that aren't yet. I guess the thing I struggle with is I think there's the people who are already concerned and we can say, okay, preaching to the choir doesn't help. I actually think sometimes it helps a bit. I mean, I think they deserve some preaching too, but you know, okay. Then there's the people you're never going to make any headway with, right? Which is 40% of the country are not going to listen to anything you or I say, no matter what we say, right? I don't think. And then the struggle is, you know, but I'm told by people who I think 
probably understand this problem better than I do and know more than I do that. There are still people who are not in either of those camps. Like there are still yeah. people who, who are listening to what you say and you can make a difference in what they think and you should be speaking to them. Like sometimes my faith that those people exist, you know, weakens and I need to, <laughs> that's my, you know. Well, so, so and, and I, I challenge that, that I, well, actually, no, the last few years challenges this, this, what I was about to say, but. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah. But but I don't know. I don't know how fundamentally different people that already agree with me are from people that already very strongly disagree with me. And I and I well, they differ in how likely they are to be convinced by what you're saying. I mean, they may not differ in other ways, but they, <laughs> they don't. Although, and and this is this is a very inefficient way to communicate with people. But I I suspect that the you know, in one-on-one conversations is a lot wow. easier to, and, 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 and so what is yeah. the mass media version of the one-on-one conversation? I can't, I don't, I don't know. Well, the problem, I think it's not even the mass media now. I think the problem is that social media has made the, the world insane. I think yeah. that's what it boils down to. I think that's the real, I think that's why we have Trump and all this stuff, you know, it's just made the body politic, you know, whack, wacko because they're being, I mean, this is not my original thoughts, but it's just like the algorithms reward you know, anger and, and uh, vitriol. And so that's what you get. So the same way that when you, when you start a project and you're looking at some data or, or looking at the equations and trying to figure out which terms you can combine and, and, and sort of that curiosity that's involved in that. I think if, we, if, if there was more opportunities, and I don't know how these, this is created with, with 7 billion people on this planet, right? But to have conversations that truly were curious, Right, where we're we're trying to understand each other, and we're not in the same place. Fine, but but what can we agree on? And what are your what are what are you shiftable on? Is there any anything that would change your mind? You know, part of the reason that I, I am very confident uh, about the reality of global warming is that there have been and there there continues to be sort of a list of things that could change my opinion, could have changed my my interpretation of the data. Right. And and none of those things have ever come to be. So we, we keep getting distracted by these interesting conversations, but I want to yeah. I want to make sure that we cover your 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 career. So like yeah. you were starting to talk, I think, about how you got interested in hurricanes and global warming. And I think it'd be good to hear your sort of accounting of that, not only because of the trajectory of your career, although that's kind of the point here because you're yeah. the guest on the podcast, but also because your trajectory through that field happened at the same time. That this field, which was, I mean, since we're talking about politics, is as politicized as any topic in the field has ever been. And it not only was that the case, but it also went from being a small backwater area that like 20 people worldwide worked on to being like a gigantic thing that's in the media every day and has dozens and dozens of papers and, you know, reports written about it. So I just want to hear about like how that all happened and both your trajectory through it and also how that fit in with like the fields and the world's trajectory through it, which, you know, I'm sure you yeah, know what I'm talking so, about because you were there for the whole thing. So I started thinking about hurricanes and global warming around 2005, like many of us. Right. Right. Because we had Katrina yeah. at the same time. There was, was it the American Meteorological Society meeting where they had a, uh, that panel where, where we had a few, was it Carrie Emanuel was there. And Bill and, Gray, yeah. Bill Gray and Greg Holland and and it was a big a big uh, it was a big it was one of I don't want to say it was one of the undignified but it was something like that 
right? It was well, some of the people were undignified. Some of the people were <laughs> were not behaving in 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 very polite ways, and it, and it just reflects bad on everybody, right? So this is the inter- once one of the kids at the table starts throwing food, everybody's there, right? It's uh, um, well, I mean, just anyway. to, I, I want to say just because I mean, just to give credit where credit is due. Uh, you know, to that debate was Carrie Emanuel. The, the core of it, because it happened a couple times at a couple of AMS meetings, was was Bill Gray, who was old. Yeah, there guard, was no equivalence. There and was getting you know giving Carrie Emanuel a hard time, and Carrie never lost it. I mean, he he was no, and I was really really impressed by that. Like that, he was a role model in my view. In that, so Carrie has been Carrie has been somebody who, although at many times I have found myself interpreting data differently from him. Yeah. I have found him to be a class act. Absolutely. Curious. Yeah. Open to disagreement. Yeah. Um, sort of willing to revisit some of the things he's, 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 and, and then that makes me open to revisit some of the yeah, things yeah, that yeah. I've thought to find. So Absolutely. I, but, but, but I, you know, but I'm telling you my perception in 2005, I didn't, all I saw was that the right. book Storm World came out. Right. Well, and, and it was also Carrie's paper and Peter Webster's paper that both made a big splash by saying that, you know, hurricanes is, and global warming is a real problem. It's happening now. You know, it grew attention in a different way. And coming from those guys who neither of them had made that big a statement before, and they're both very famous guys in the field. And so that, yeah. Although, although if you read those papers carefully, Carrie's paper was much more measured. Yeah, okay. It, it, anyway, uh <laughs> Was, but they both was, got beat up by the old guard who did in the hurricane field who did not like it. They, they, didn't they want definitely to hear about did. global warming at all. But at the same time, my office was right next door to Tom Knudsen's office. So Tom Knudsen right. um, at GFDL, being one of the one of the sort of the pioneers of of modeling hurricanes yes. and, and the response to global warming. Yes. And so I kept going into Tom's office and being yes. like Tom. Uh, could you explain this to me? And I had all these questions, and I kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him, right? And and that's some of them just talking with Tom about hurricanes. Um, then I got involved in a project with Tom where where I had been doing these. We we're talking about the Indian Ocean observing system. I had been doing these observing system simulation experiments. These experiments to help you design an observing system. We would ask with a given observing system, what would you see and what would you not see. Right. And so yeah. that would help you design an observing system. But that was some of the ways that I was thinking about things. And with Tom Knutson at that time, we started thinking about, well, could we design something like an observing system simulation experiment to ask questions about hurricanes before the satellite era? And so that yeah. was one of the ways that I got into sort of asking the question, how many hurricanes did we not see uh, before I, satellites? I know this paper well, but I... I had the impression that you've been working out of, was that really like your first one in the topic? I, I had the sense that that came after you'd been in it for a while. That came after, but the, the whole process was simultaneous. It wasn't that I threw myself into hurricanes and global warming. It was just that Tom Knudsen and I started that project. And then I just thought that wasn't your first paper. I, that's all. No, I no, it wasn't because then oh. Brian Soden and I, well, it, oh. it, it's okay, also okay. these projects take a while to come to completion, right, but right, Brian right. Soden yeah. and I had been working on sort of the weakening of the Walker circulation in response to global warming. Yes, yes, which we could talk and, about because that was a hugely important yeah, piece of work. Yeah. But, but let's and, keep going with the hurricanes, though. Yeah, yeah, and then one of the things is that the, the weakening of the Walker circulation, which is sort of this, this 
sort of large circulation across the Pacific that rises in the West Pacific and descends in the East Pacific. And it weakens during El Nino. Mm. And during El Nino, the weakening of the walker circulation in the Pacific is associated with higher wind shears in the Atlantic. And is one of the reasons we think that the Atlantic has less hurricane activity during El Nino. And since Brian and I and Isaac and Andrew Wittenberg were finding that there was this weakening of the walker circulation, definitely in models and maybe in observations um, in response to global warming, so, uh, I, Brian and I started asking, well, does wind shear increase in the Atlantic also in response to this mm-hmm. weakening of the walker circulation? So that, mm-hmm. that was what I thought was going to be a one-off paper that Brian and I were going to write, and we ended up writing it. But when we saw that, yes, the models showed a strengthening of wind shear, which is bad for hurricanes, in the Atlantic in response to global warming, we needed to put that all in context of other changes on other things that hurricanes care about. And one of the things that we started looking at was Kerry Manuel's potential intensity. This is sort of a theoretical upper bound on hurricane intensity, so since Brian was more the atmospheric scientist, I told Brian, Brian, can you calculate potential intensity from these yeah. models and see how it changes in response to global warming? Right. And because we need to include this in the paper, because we need to put the shear changes right. in the context of the potential intensity changes. Right. And potential intensity is something that, at least in my conception at the time, was strongly controlled by ocean temperatures. And so if you yeah. had warming, you should have a, sort of an overall increase in potential intensity. Yeah. And that's what we were going to, we were trying to juxtapose the increase in potential intensity that we we're going to see with the increase in shear. One of them, the potential intensity would make hurricanes stronger. The other one perhaps would make it weaker. Yeah. And, and then I went to visit Brian in Miami to, to finish the paper. And Brian said, oh, uh, I haven't been able to calculate potential intensity. I've been busy. And so then I go and I said, okay, oh, whatever, I'll do it, Brian. You know, you lazy bum. And so I go and I, and I, and I start and I calculate it and I start looking and I'm like potential intensity even though all of these models for response to global warming are showing the oceans warming everywhere they in response to greenhouse gases when I calculated potential intensity changes I kept finding big patches of decreases in potential intensity and also big patches of increases in potential intensity right and it was like oh I'm a numbskull I don't know how to calculate this thing and so yeah. then I went to Brian in, in the next day. He was like, well, did you calculate? I was like, oh, I wasn't able to. I've been too busy. And then we kept talking. And then eventually it came out that, in fact, he had tried to calculate it. And he had found patches of decrease. And he had decided he did it wrong. And then I had tried to calculate. And, and, and it wasn't that we hadn't calculated. It is that both of us thought we did it wrong. And, and so then that's right. how we, we found these decreases. And we're sitting there like, what did we do wrong? And that's how we... It, we started thinking about sort of your work on the weak temperature gradient. Oh, right, right, yeah. And and how the how sort of the overall warming of the tropics, in particular areas where air was rising, could act to give areas where you have either more warming than the tropics, you should get potential intensity increases, or less warming than the yeah. tropics, you should get potential intensity decreases. Right, and this right, was right. all sort of our 2007 work on shears right, and potential right. intensity. And right. so that's how I got into it. It was, but yeah. I meant to get into it and get out. Right. And that didn't happen. It did not happen. But wasn't, so, so I mean, so yeah, those papers were, were a big deal and, and, you know, we were very much influenced by them. They're, they're great paper, but was it at that time or did it come a little later? 
that you guys started doing the high resolution modeling? I have the sense that that was also starting about the same time. It was it was also starting about the same time. So so Isaac Held and Ming Zhao and S.J. Lin were developing these high resolution atmospheric models, models that sort of global atmospheric models that could actually represent tropical cyclones in a somewhat realistic way. And and so it should be said because the climate models before that could not. I mean, so this was. Not, yeah. not well. I mean, they had not something. Well. But they had, yeah. These were, it was a big, big leap forward in how well they were doing it. It, it was a big leap forward, at least in how, how realistic they looked. Although there was that 1991 paper by Tony Broccoli and Suki yeah, Yanabe. Yeah. To a certain extent, the, what, the results that they showed in that 91 paper for global hurricane frequency largely spanned the results of, of present day. But yes, well, maybe yes. not for the same reasons or anything, but I, I, I think that that paper is so cool. That they tried to do yeah. something that they shouldn't be able to do. Anyway, but yeah, the, 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 so then there was the development of these high-resolution models, and you could you could actually start simulating hurricanes and doing all sorts of neat experiments, and that that started percolating across the community. So in 2005, the community was really contentious and it was really small, and in many ways, it was defined by camps. That's what I would like to criticize about that time because people, I think, felt that some of these things were more personal than they should have been. Whether yeah. they were or weren't doesn't matter. People felt that way, right? Yeah. And I think to some extent they were. I think since the mid-2000s, a number of people came into the hurricanes and climate question right? Yeah. that weren't working particularly in hurricanes and climate, who were coming in more from the weather side or more from the climatey side or more. And, yeah. and I think that was a net benefit, Yeah, right? You had... People who had no identifiable or plausible horse in the race, right? And also people who came in with different perspectives, different methods, different ideas. And I think there has been a flourishing of understanding of the hurricane climate connection, not just in the global warming context, but also for the seasonal prediction question, uh, also for the sort of even the weather scale prediction, the hurricane and climate development since the mid-2000s to where we are now, is a wonderful case for the value of diversity and, and, and new yeah. perspectives in a field, yeah. right? And based on that, I, I wonder, should we be forced to change what we work on after 10 years? Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. Or at least... You know, maybe you don't have to drop it, but at least add a new thing or something, you know, switch a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't no, want to make I any think, hard. I, no half measures, yeah. I, I don't want to make any hard prohibitions, but. No, I, I want, I think that that's how it would be most effective. Now, not everybody on the same year. So not everybody. on this, <laughs> So there is still some low pass filter in there, but you get, you get your permit and, and you have your hurricanes and climate permit for 10 years. Yeah. And then, and then you get another permit. You get, I don't know, now you have to work on the Manjulian Oscillation or on El Nino. I, so I said that, I told you at the beginning that like I'm not a journalist and I don't have a long list of questions, but I had one written down that I wanted to ask you and I feel like we've come to the point where I should ask it to you. Okay. Which is, since we've gotten to talking about the political debate and not playing fair and you know, this podcast is in part an outgrowth of me being traumatized by the Trump years and so on, I want to hear your reflections having left Venezuela for the United States on the last five years and the present moment in u.s history like having come from where you came from and how you got here does it enable you to see things that aren't obvious or that the rest of us don't see or just what's your you know do you have any historical 
story to tell there that that would help us make sense of this? So, so I do not have a story that will make you feel better. If that's what you're looking for, I no, don't I'm not expecting. I'm not that optimistic. So, uh, Venezuela, for I don't know how much you know about the history and, and the present situation. Venezuela was, as I was growing up, it's sort of the longest standing democracy in Latin America. We had a constitution that was written sometime in the early 50s after the the preceding, the last, the final up to that point, dictator was uh, sort of exiled from the country. And it was a a two-party democracy. The rest of Latin America was largely dominated by different types of dictatorships and there were civil wars of different types. And so Venezuela, because it was rich, because it was a democracy, was a haven for people. I remember in, in the National Research Institute being surrounded by sort of all sorts of luminaries from all over Latin America. And it was just, mm. it was just paradise in, mm. in, in some way, right? Mm. However, it wasn't paradise everywhere in the country. And, and so the two-party system was dysfunctional. And you had a series of, of presidents that didn't get things done and a series of presidents that didn't handle the really fundamental issues of the country and, and invest in developing an economy that was more than an extraction economy. Yeah. And there was a huge and growing uh, population that was being left out of the economic growth in, in the country and sort of growth of, of, of slums and despair. And that was created by the dominant political structures, right? Yeah. And into that, stepped in Hugo Chavez, who was a, a colonel in, in the army, had led a failed coup, and he ran on a really polarized and 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 very familiar to anyone that was around for the 2016 election mm. um, campaign. The details were different, the enemies were different, but it was all about very much cleaving the country into two parts yeah and him being the only person that could lead to this rescue now some of the issues that chavez identified were very real right so the the inequality yeah. the lack of you know despair that existed now the thing is he didn't do anything to fix them yeah right and and i i believe you know i was just in upstate new york and I, and i see that you know in some of the more rural parts of our country they're they're so sort of the economic growth that we have seen in Princeton and in Seattle and in San Francisco and in New York hasn't trickled down there. Yeah. I mean, I, and so it is real that, that some people have been left out. And, but the net effect is that Venezuela went from being the longest standing democracy to ha- and having the greatest econo- economy of all of Latin America to now where it's essentially a failed state. Right? Yeah. Their crime is rife. You know, there's a small elite, which is part of the old elite and this new elite that control pretty much all the resources and um, the middle class has sort of disappeared. So disorder is, is more stable than order. And the, the state of the United States in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, isn't an inevitable state. And, and it's one that takes work to maintain. And I, and I think that both political parties and, and, and sort of dominant political institutions didn't do their care. Now, I think that the United States is probably more stable than Venezuela. It's a larger, there's, you know, the, the constitution is longer lasting and all these things, but, yeah, but I don't know. You know. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. So I, so I, you know, the, the, this, the things that I see is similar. There's a lot of differences and some of the differences are really fundamental. Right. And so in a sense, this is like when we, what's when the we most look, fundamental one, I think that 
the, the United States is, is a much more federal system, right? That there's, there's much more of the decisions are done at a local level, at a state level. And so it is, in that sense, it's, it's a lot harder to change anything because, you know, it, it's really springy. So you can, you can, maybe you can get something done in New York and really dramatically change New York, but that's not going to have any impact on, I don't know, on Oregon. Right. And the president does have a lot of power, but it not so much. And so, so, so I think that that adds lags to the system that in a, in a country that is more centralized don't exist. The other one is that the economy in the United States is much more diversified. Right. Right. You know, there's extraction, there's agriculture, there's manufacture, there's information, there's services, there's all these things There's education is a big piece of the economy. So I think it makes everything much more resilient, you know? So yeah, I mean, I, I guess the thing is, like, that's all true. I guess the thing that scares me the most, in a way, is that I think whatever the the failings of the U.S. democracy, it's still by global standards, it's, you know, it's done pretty well in some ways for a long time. And so, but that makes Americans unable to appreciate it. I mean, in other words, people think, they think things can't happen that it seems to me they're wrong about People think that because things have been some way, they're going to stay that, you know, they have to stay that way. And the, the Constitution is some incredible magic thing that makes, you know, as you just described, like, that's just not true. It doesn't work like that. No, things can change. implemented by people and make people can be corrupted very fast. And, and it wasn't, I mean, you know, I'm not going to get into a, a big constitutional discussion about which clause and which section, but it, you know, I think, I think, you know, it, it wasn't a perfect document. No, but so it definitely wasn't a perfect document, but on some level, it doesn't matter what kind of document it was, is what I'm saying, you know, because it could have been, but yeah, but this goes to, to what do you do when people behave poorly? I don't know. I don't, you know, on a massive scale. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, and I think this ties in when we were discussing the people that, that believe that the earth is flat, but you know, and I think that's a great example because so many people can say, oh, what a ridiculous idea or whatever, right? So we most, practically all people on the planet can agree that that is a ridiculous idea. I think it's a mistake when we see people have what we consider a ridiculous idea to dismiss them yeah, um, because right. no, because it, it, right. it, cre- it cleaves things. And, and it, uh, I, I don't know, I, I've... And, and and now maybe I'll get a little melancholy, but you know, it was so just recently at my mother's funeral and, and, oh, and I'm sorry. And, yeah. It's, you know, it was beautiful. It was so beautiful. Got to spend time and, and reminisce and be with each other as a family. But uh, one of the things that I, I, I really thought about and, 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 you know, what my mother's impact on me has been, has been really to, and I think this is something I, I'm very grateful to her for is to look for, my mother was an artist, and so she she, she mm. just everything she wanted was was to what, see beautiful things. What medium? Um, she primarily painted and drew, uh, mm. but she had some sculptures. She had, mm. and uh, she did photography sometimes. But I think she approached life that way. She always anyone she met, she wanted to connect with and find a way to to to, mm. to find the beautiful thing in them. You know, because of that, sometimes she got herself into trouble, but other times she managed to, to find these most wonderful people that I've I've gotten to know and I would have not gotten to know normally. And and I, I, so so I, I think that having that type of approach in life is it has dangers, right? Mm-hmm. You can be taken advantage of sometimes. Right. But 
there's not enough of it in the world. And I think it's necessary, especially if we start thinking about the political climate in this country, but also in trying to connect with people that don't fully understand what it is that we know and how we know it and what our role in this is. Right. I think it's important to, to have empathy and and open up to them, right? right. Uh, I don't know. But you want to stand up against injustice on some level too, right? And sometimes it's hard to say which is which. Like that's the thing about being taken advantage of, right? It's like- Exactly. Right. So, so, so you need, and it is this balance, right? And, and when it is in the abstract, it's, it's hard to answer when you're, when you're actually in a situation that becomes a lot more clear. The, the fact of the matter is it's important with, when communicating with people about climate change, that it is so clear that Increasing greenhouse gases warm the planet, rise sea levels, change the hydrologic cycle, change the patterns of rainfall and drought, have a high probability of changing the statistics of tropical cyclones, among other things, that, you know, maybe focusing on that is the more important thing. Part of the problem is that sometimes the media asks silly questions. I guess the media training, I don't know if you ever had media training. I never did, but I'm told that what they tell you is to know what you want to say and say it no matter what they ask you. I never got very good at that, but I, I, always, try, I always try to answer the question. And sometimes I don't know. And they ask me, I'm like, hmm, geez. And like, I learned that that's, that's wrong. That's considered wrong. The wrong that is, approach. <laughs> so, so, the, so and you've seen very good people at this, right? They answer the question they wanted to answer and right. they say what they wanted to say. And I, I, I think... You know, with with regards to sort of hurricanes and global warming, which is what oftentimes I get asked to talk about, yeah. um, the thing that is, I think, scientifically fully defensible and and also really important for people to understand is that, in spite of any uncertainty about the specific changes to hurricanes from global warming, mm-hmm. we are almost certain that sea levels will be considerably higher. Mm-hmm. We're almost certain that peak rainfall from hurricanes will also be stronger. And mm-hmm. we have a high grade degree of confidence that the peak winds will be stronger. And mm-hmm. so even if the, the frequency of hurricanes changes a little bit in either direction, those factors will be dominant in, in sort of our susceptibility. So I try to end on that whenever I can. Maybe it's better yeah. to start on that. I don't know. All right. So I, So to try to tie some of these threads together, I'm going to ask a question that's actually pragmatic. And I'm sure yeah. this is describing a situation that I'm sure has actually happened to you. So it's not hypothetical. Like student comes into your office, advanced undergraduate, considering grad school, or maybe a grad student who's already in it, in our field. Professor Vecchi, you know, I, I love doing the science, and but I'm also really, really concerned about the climate problem. So, you know, what's the right career choices I should make? Should I be a professor like you or should I do something else? If so, what? Uh- well, if you if you become a professor, you shouldn't be a professor like me, number one. But uh, but but seriously, what what people should do? Uh, that's a good question, right? Um, because well, and it's a really good question because it's a person actually. It's a question that we get all the time. We get this question all the time. Well, and, and for some of these young people, it's very very real. This is not a hypothetical. They're really you know, it's a harder struggle for them than I think it was for us in a way because I don't know. I feel like we had the way the culture. And the political climate was, I feel like we had the luxury, as you described, not really confronting that as a young scientist, and I didn't either. And I feel like they can't avoid it. Yeah. I think that the answer to that question is more questions, right? It is, it is what is it that you want to accomplish, right? And, and, and there's a spectrum of things that we want to accomplish. 
yeah, I don't know. This is a tough question because I struggle with this, right? So the only way that I deal with it with, when I talk with students about this is to have conversations with them and, and listen yeah. to them and, and ask them questions. I think some of, of the more important things that can be done right now involve better understanding of the politics of global warming, of the economics of global warming, better understanding of energy technologies, yeah. uh, of materials. Uh, there's issues to do with justice. Who huge, in this huge planet, issues to do with justice, yeah. The whole, the whole who issue on this planet to, should, should bear the, the cost of decarbonizing. And at what rate should different people do it? And those, those are serious things to consider and, and I think would be very impactful to have people that are intelligent and caring and, uh, and, and, and concerned involved in. Um, but there's also a lot of physical science and, and, and sort of biological science, et cetera, with, with regards to climate that needs to be done for adaptation. Yeah. Right. And, and so yeah. if everyone goes into one channel, then, then we're not going to have a balanced effort which is what is required. It's, it's a pretty large and balanced effort and interactive. And, and so the, the things that really excite me day to day are largely in the field that I primarily work with, right? And trying to understand the ocean and the atmosphere, look at data, use models. And so I think that within this global sort of effort, I, that is my best deployment. And so I think I think is 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 you know finding that resonance between what excites you and and what is is impactful. Yeah, I mean you have to do something. You know, if you do something you hate, you're not going to be very good at it, right? I think yeah. that's that's sort of important. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that we should never push ourselves at all, right? To do things that seem uncomfortable. Well, I think I think it's important to do things you're not good at every now and again, and and, and often, right. and 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 dig into it, right? Uh, but that, that's not a good an answer anyway. No, it's a great answer. I mean, I you know, I, I don't have a better one. I think it's great that we're getting these questions, right, yeah. from our students. You know, I don't think I was asking these questions. No. Really. No. Uh, I, I perceive them as a very idealistic, not idealistic in the sense of being naive or, you know, believing things are better than they are, but idealistic in the sense of they really want to live their values. These kids think, and it's, yeah. I think I think people are are people. And every generation looks like the preceding generation, just a certain time later, right? And I don't know. I feel like the world's changing faster and faster. It is and it isn't, though, right? <laughs> I, I thought of myself as really idealistic, and I was in many ways when I was younger, and and even now, you know, I have I have certain things that I'm. I'm pretty idealistic about even that that surprised me in the way i'm idealistic about them and sort of my but i think they they reflect my experience and sort of the the concerns of my time but i, I so i don't think that the present generation is any more or less idealistic i think that they're just being confronted with a different set of realities than we were and and so what they're idealistic about is maybe different well, I think I it just, I think it's just, it feels like there's so much more at stake. Like when we were, I mean, maybe it was different in Venezuela, but I mean, if you grew up in the United States when I did, and I guess when you more or less, at least in the later part of your yeah. youth did, despite all the awful stuff in the world, it was sort of possible to feel that things were sort of okay. And I think it's harder for a lot of people to feel that way. And, you know, I know that it's because we're, you know, I'm white and privileged and all that stuff. Like yeah. I'm fully aware that, 
but I think for even for people who are the present day analog of me, it is harder to feel that way. And so that sense of urgency may yeah. is something that they can't, they don't have the luxury of not confronting in the way that I apparently had the luxury. We, many of my generation have the luxury of not confronting it. It's probably true. And maybe that is for the better, right? That, that, that you don't have the luxury to not confront things. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they are getting pretty, pretty philosophical here it's like you know it's, the Buddha, like yeah, the Buddhist it, 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 life is suffering right so you don't want to wish on people that they should never have you know experience anything bad but yet you sort of do like right do you you sort of want your children not to suffer but in their hand you know you no, know but it's part of being human and like yeah we're getting pretty well but but the other one is i mean just even think about you know do you want it do you want to feel comfortable at a certain point just sort of then, then what if you don't have something right. that you're chasing or that is chasing you, then, then what are you going to do? Yeah. Right. Now, it, would it be better that the things that are chasing us or that we're chasing were a lot less terrible? Yeah, that would be totally better. <laughs> right. Like, if I start thinking about this too much, then I get, I'll get, I'll start feeling dejected. So I'm not going to. Um, okay. Well, I've kept you for almost three hours. So, I mean, yeah. we should probably wrap up. Is there anything else that we should have talked about that we didn't? I don't know. We probably should have talked about things different from what we did, but I, I think in but no it, specific uh, thing comes. To I mind. can't imagine anything. <laughs> yeah. All right, Adam. This was uh, this was fun. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, Gabe. It was great to talk to you. I much appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. It's not easy to do it, and um, you know, yeah. just thank you. No problem. Thank you. All, All right. right, and then I'll see you in the real world. Right. Awesome to connect on the joy of science and the failure of democracy and everything else we got into in that long meander. It's always great to talk with Gabe Becky, and I'm so glad I could record that conversation for you. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer was Stefan Wiener. And our audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine. And our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.